Welcome to Rag Trader Radio. A behind the scenes look at the latest in the Australian fashion industry. This episode is proudly brought to you by Klarna. Klarna has been connecting the world's biggest brands with shoppers for over 15 years. Let your customers pay with flexibility, give them the freedom to shop when inspired, and pay later. Boost sales increase average order value, and keep your customers coming back for more. Boost your business with Klarna, online and in-store. Visit klarna.com.au. And welcome to Rag Trader Radio. You're hanging out with me, Imogen Bailey. I am Associate Editor of Rag Trader. And today I am joined by Actor Capital founder and CEO, Richard Faccioni. Richard has over 25 years of experience in private equity, principal investments, and mergers and acquisitions. During his career, Richard originated and oversaw investments including the combination of Noni B, Pretty Girl Fashion Group and Specialty Fashion Group to become Mosaic Brands, as well as the acquisition of Surf Stitch, Easy Buy and Ginger and Smart. Today, I'll be talking to him about weathering COVID impacts in varying retail channels, retail acquisitions and the future growth. Thanks for joining me today, Richard. My pleasure, Imogen. Good to be here. Well, it is an interesting chat we're about to have um, and you're an interesting man to talk to because you have many fingers in many sort of different retail pies and one, uh, I mean, we can talk about all the different ones that you're involved with being one Mosaic, which has a huge store network and also a really strong online presence, Mosaic brands that is obviously Rivers, Noni B, heaps of other brands that are escaping my brain right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. nine different ones. Um, Surf Stitch, which is obviously all online only, um, kind of streetswear, skate, um, lifestyle type clothing. And then the um, luxury brand, Ginger and Smart as well. So you're sort of involved in some way or another in all of those retail, um, fashion retail brands, which is really interesting to kind of look at when we're looking at surviving and thriving and trading in COVID era. So can you I guess, talk, kind of talk me through some of the key changes and ways that each of these brands have kind of moved through this pandemic trading period? Sure. A lot of the changes have been pretty well publicised and pretty well known. I mean, <clears throat> that focus on online and the shift to online, particularly with store closures and lockdowns. So all the businesses have, have increased their efforts uh, in terms of um, <clears throat> lifting their game when it comes to their online offering. Also, we've seen a shift to more casual product as, you know, more people staying at home and not being able to go out. So we've seen that shift. And also we've seen the shift in, um, you know, reducing store footprints and and, reset, and also resetting lease profiles uh, for, for stores that we're retaining. So all those changes have been pretty well publicised. We've been doing that across all of our boards. Obviously, we've not been reducing store footprints for surf dishes. It doesn't have any, but certainly in the bricks and mortar stores, uh, we've been looking at optimising our store footprints. Some of the other changes are probably less overt. I think most retailers have taken the opportunity over the last 18 months to reset their cost bases and their team structures to operate leaner uh, and to remove the fat that may have built up in a business over years um, so that we're, we're match fit for the post-pandemic environment. We've also all been focusing on reducing our inventory holdings and having our stock work a lot harder. Um, so, you know, in the old days, we might just buy a whole lot of stock and, hey, we'll sell what we can then we'll clear the rest through you know, through discounting and markdown, we're now focusing on, you know, let's let's be a bit smarter about the inventory that we bring in 
uh, and, and how we trade through it and have that inventory work a lot harder. And, you know, with um, store closures, particularly through the first lockdown, but even this um, current lockdown that we're in, um, with all your stores closed or a big proportion of your stores closed, you've got time and the opportunity to actually do a strategic review, which you don't often get the chance in retail because everything's so fast-paced and it's day-to-day and, you know, it's today's sales, tomorrow's sales. So in this environment uh, with all the businesses, we've just taken the opportunity to say, well, okay, where do we want to be in three years' time? Once COVID is hopefully a thing of the past and we're back in a relatively normalised world, where do we want to be in three years? And let's start to make those changes today so we set ourselves up for that. So ironically enough, lockdowns have given us the time and the bandwidth to think about those those issues. So they'd be the main changes, I think, that, that we've seen across our, our businesses. It's interesting that you mentioned, I guess, that inventory position as well, because that has also, I've noticed, been quite a, a, a common theme among um, retailers in different sectors outside of fashion too. And I just want to, I guess, hear more about how you actually make stock work harder for you. I mean, to me, I guess you're trying to be focusing on getting full price sales rather than discounted sales and and obviously being more strategic about not bringing in a whole heap of things that potentially might not get the sell through. But how do you kind of, I guess, how do you make the stock work harder for you? So one thing that we did through, particularly through the first lockdown was through all of our businesses, take the opportunity to clear through legacy age stock. You know, a lot of people, in fact, everyone was cancelling orders or delaying orders last last lockdown and again through this lockdown, not knowing when it's going to end. So it gives you the opportunity to work through your legacy uh, inventory and you come out of it with a cleaner inventory position. So that's the first thing. I think everyone has tried to varying degrees of success to do that. We've certainly done that very successfully in, in our businesses. Then this is where it comes into the, the store footprint going forward as well. As you shrink your store footprint, and as you take that capacity out of the market, you now say, well, I need less stock for those fewer stores, but I've still got the same number of customers. So now I've got the opportunity to be less promotional and to actually achieve a higher sell-through at full price before I move into markdown mode. So the, the, the two sort of go, go hand in hand. And then it's a clever use of online as a primary sales channel, but also then to be a clearance channel, depending on the time of year and the business, to also use that as your clearance channel as well. So they're the sorts of things that, we, um, that we've been doing and just, you know, I think um, really just focusing on reducing the level of promotional activity, focusing more on gross margin outcomes rather than just a sales outcome and making sure that we're getting those gross margin outcomes. You know what it means is I look at a business like Mosaic and we'll come out of this with a much smaller um, footprint, store footprint. It's still a big footprint. It's still a 1,000 stores or so. It's still a big footprint but um, it's a much smaller footprint um, and a lower revenue, top-line revenue number, but we're actually going to be more profitable as a result. So that, that that's, I guess, the benefit of what we've been able to do. And it's interesting too, I guess, the shift that we've been seeing towards that sort of reducing the store number and, and using online sort of as the, the main way to push a lot of sales, especially through COVID with stores closed. And it sort of is a... a very contrasting position as to previous growth in retail, which was get a business, get a stock, open as many stores as you can and try and sell it through as many stores to as many people as you can. And we've seen over the past few years, and it has been accelerated through COVID, a lot of people calling it a big seismic shift that was coming in, you know, five years of growth in, in well, 18 months now. But this closing of stores 
while Mosaic will still have a large store footprint once you finish this, I think you, you mentioned in your um, FY20 results that it was about 300 to 500 stores closing in the next 12 to 24 months. So that has obviously been going on throughout this year. How many stores have you have you closed now to this point? Oh, we would have closed over 200 by now uh, and, and, and more to go. But, um, you know, we look at it a little differently. So what we're looking at it as, what does the future store portfolio need to look, look like? So whilst we're closing stores, what we're also looking at is growing uh, our Rivers store portfolio. And they're, they're larger format stores. So Rivers as a brand is actually going to be growing its store portfolio. We're also introducing large format uh, multi-brand stores and we're doing those particularly in regional centres. Uh, we've opened the first couple of those, which will have the full range of Mosaic brands. Um, and so that strategy will see more store growth. And we're also, with the uh, pending acquisition of Easy Buy by Mosaic, um, we'll start to launch Easy Buy stores. So whilst we're closing on the one hand, we're opening on the other. And whilst net-net, we might end up with fewer stores, it's, it's more the composition of the, store, uh, of the store portfolio that is relevant. A brand like Ginger and Smart doesn't actually have that many stores, and so we'll be looking to grow stores uh, and grow um, concessions uh, for that brand. So I think different brands are in different stages. I think the, the issue with a brand like or business like Mosaic is it, it had such a large legacy position of stores and what we said was, you know what, in this new environment, in this new world, and we were seeing the trends pre, pre-COVID, but COVID just accelerated it, we don't need to have 14 or 1,500 uh, 200 square metre, 150 square metre, 120 square metre stores. When there's a smaller portfolio of those boutiques and perhaps a larger portfolio of bigger format stores, and that's where we see the future. It's interesting that you mentioned about the regional centres kind of getting this this multi-brand store of, of um, all of Mosaic's brands. So is that sort of, I guess, bringing the digital strategy, which is a department store strategy, which is the multiple brands, multiple um, kind of categories into the retail format, which is interesting kind of shift, I guess, back to because Mosaic used the department digital department store strategy as a way to boost online sales and really drive growth in the online channel. And now it's it's shifting back to the, the, the I guess, traditional retail setting. So it's interesting that that, can you talk me through, I guess, the decision behind that? And is that a new business that Mosaic will be running or will it just be Mosaic Department Store or how's that going to look? It, it'll, it'll be within the existing brands, but it's, it's interesting what, what, what you say. So when the first lockdown happened and all our stores were closed, we had nothing to do but focus on online. And so what we did successfully is we launched our uh, a marketplace strategy, which was effectively our department store strategy. And what that allowed us to do was to introduce new categories into those brands. So you could go onto the 90B website and you can buy bed linen and you can buy a toaster oven and you can buy a robotic vacuum cleaner, things that, you know, would never be sold in an 90B store, but we can now sell them online. And we do it because we run a, a market where we act as the marketplace for these vendors. So we don't take any inventory risk. We just present those products to our customers. What we then see is we can see the products that are really resonating with our customers. I'll give you an example. It's a silly one, but silk pillowcases. We can't get enough silk pillowcases. Our customers love them. They don't take up a lot of space. So it's like, well, let's get them in the stores as well. So that's it. that gave us the, the confidence to say we can actually stock those in store and sell them in store as well. As we build out these bigger, these bigger um, format stores, 
we'll be able to look at the categories that we know our customers are buying and, and they're resonating. And we can say, well, let's get those, I don't know, robotic vacuum cleaners in that big format store. You can't get it into a 120 square metre Noni B store because it's too small. But if you've got a 500 square metre or 800 square metre store, you can definitely put them in there. So, so this is where, you know, you need to start to break down the barriers, the artificial barrier between online and offline. You know, it's, it's, you've got to take an integrated approach to your offering. And that's, that's how your customer sees you. They've got to see this unified approach, whether it's online, whether it's offline. And we've got to take that approach in terms of how we, we go to market. And increasingly, we're doing that across our, all of our businesses. You know, traditionally, people would talk about online as a store, as their biggest store. It's actually not. It's a core business that underpins the rest of your business. And that's how you've got to start to think about it. And that's certainly how we're thinking about it. And that's a really interesting way to approach the new way of retailing, as people like to call it, is this this real, really, truly omni-channel approach in that what sells online can also be in store and then sort of vice versa and the customer can shift between each channel that they want to interact with. And I guess the question that comes from there is that the stores that maybe aren't going to be these department store style um, or these big stores that will have all these different products in, the stores that will just remain the one brand, so your Noni Bs, your Millers, those types of stores, will they become a more showcase piece for the online channel or will it still be a really strong, given um, those brands' customer probably prefers to shop in-store as well? Is is there – how do you kind of, I guess, view the future of the store in terms of an omni-channel kind of structure? Yeah, our online sales are currently a little over 20% of total sales. And with the acquisition of Easy Buy, it'll jump to more like 30%. Bricks and mortars is always going to be a very, very significant part of our of our revenue base. And, you know, you have to understand how, how the Noni B shopper shops or how the Miller's shopper shops. She's often in a, in a centre uh, on her way to the supermarket to do her shopping and she'll walk past Noni B and pop in and see what, what's, what, what's there and, and buy something. And so that, that dynamic's not going to change and we don't want it to change. So whilst um, she may come online and buy things online from us, whether it's apparel or whether it's some of the other offerings that we're able to offer online, that in-store experience um, is always going to be really important. So I actually don't believe for a business like Mosaic that we can treat those stores as showcases. They've actually have, they have to be um, profitable business units in their own right. They have to deliver uh, a contribution in their own right. Otherwise, we shouldn't be in that store. That's, that's, that's very much our business model. Mm. And probably the reasoning behind closing the stores that were underperforming as well. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. Mm. And so looking forward, what are kind of some of the key growth channels? I mean, you've spoken about the the store growth in Ginger and Smart, but um, maybe particularly looking at Surf Stitch as a, an online only player, what are you kind of looking to do there in terms of growth and, and how are you pursuing those kind of channels for growth? Um, well, you know, Digital is going to be is continue is going to continue to be a big source of growth for all of our all of our brands. And in the same way as what we've done with Mosaic with Surfstitch, we're launching a, a marketplace offering. And you've seen you know um, businesses like the Iconic have done that. Uh, I think Woolworths have just announced something as well. So that that um, opportunity to expand your offering to your customers and give them more of what you think they will buy that may be outside of your core 
um, your core offering, but are things that you, you'd like to offer them. So, so SurfTeach is very much moving down the path of, of increasing its offering through, through a marketplace uh, model. And we expect, I expect you're going to see more and more businesses doing that, um, using their online stores as, um, you know, to create a marketplace. There's plenty of inventory, there's plenty of product out there, but if you have a, a uniquely identifiable customer base that's loyal to you, that's of value to other brands and to other products. And if they can access that customer base, then that's in, important to them. And I'll give you a really good example, and this is a second area of growth, I think. You're going to start to see more collaboration between brands and between retailers. So, for example, General Pants recently launched their vertical product range on Surfditch um, through our marketplace, and that's going really well. So we're able to offer General Pants products to our customer, and it's new product for our customer that they haven't seen on SurfStitch, and it's allowing General Pants to access our customer base and grow their, their, their sell-through. So it's working well for both of us, and, and I think you're going to see, see more of those. I, you know, we are starting to think more and more about international growth for some of our brands, and we're seeing some interesting wins there, um, whether it's through a direct-to-consumer online model, whether it's through international marketplaces or through wholesale partnerships. But, for example, a brand like Ginger and Smart We've just successfully secured the first two orders into Saks Fifth Avenue for that brand, which is great for that brand. You know, you've done all the hard work. You've created this beautiful product. So to then, you know, have a few more of them made in the factory and sent to, to Saks, you know, it, it, to me that's something we should be doing more and more across across some of our brands. So they're, they're, the, they're the growth channels. But also, you know, I'll, I'll come back to bricks and mortar. For some of our brands, continued store growth is uh, and some of the new brands that we're launching and some of the new brands that we're looking at licensing that uh, physical store network growth is going to always remain a key part of our growth strategy and and there's just so much going on it, it's it's interesting to sort of hear how each of these businesses fully established and and known in their own right are then still i guess having to find new ways to evolve and keep up and innovate. It's, it's, it's a really interesting kind of puzzle piece that has to go together to make sure that everything continues on and, you know, doesn't end up stagnant because it is, it's super competitive. But it's interesting, I guess, the shift to the marketplace offering because, you know, when you think of a marketplace, you might think of the, the big online ones that exist already, Amazon and eBay and, um, you know, Catch, for example, these big, I guess that they made their business model on on the marketplace, and it's interesting that that sort of area is now also being um, uh, populated with other retailers who traditionally were just omni uh, omni channel. Not that's not the word I was looking for. The word is mono branded. That they were just they were offering their their one category, their one brand of stuff, and now it's it's sort of expanding into this this thing. Do you think that that we'll eventually have too many marketplaces, and the choice will be too much for consumers to make a decision? That's a good point. I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, you have businesses like you know Amazon and eBay, and and they try and be everything to everyone, right? And if you look at a, at a marketplace like Amazon, you know, it's very transactionally focused. You want to buy a white polo shirt, you type in white polo shirt, it comes up, you get the cheapest one, you get it delivered. Very transactional. It's not a it's not an emotional experience, uh, but it's but it's effective and it's efficient. What we're trying to do is to say, well that's great, let's leave that to Amazon. We don't want to be everything to everyone. But across each of our businesses, what we do have is a loyal customer 
that we know really, really well. And so how can we now continue to engage in, with that customer by giving them more of what they want? So SurfStitch, for example, we know, you know, we, we, that we're positioned as a coastal lifestyle casual apparel business. But, you know, we know that our customers, as well as going to the beach and surfing, they also go camping. So let's give them camping gear. And they also go hiking. Let's give them some hiking gear. We know that a lot of our or a, a core part of our customer base um, are tradies. So let's give them workwear. So that's, that's where the marketplace model starts to become really effective, where you know your customer and you know what your customer wants. So let's not, you know, let's, I'm, we're not going to sell lawnmowers on, on search <laughs> yeah. right? But we will sell electric scooters because they do sell. <laughs> so, you know, so it's knowing your customer. And I think that's the value now is if you can say to a, um, to a, a brand or portfolio of brands, uh, that I have a unique customer base that I know really, really well that I can talk to. And I think your brand would really resonate with this customer base. That's where it starts. You know, it's being smarter about it. Um, mosaic brands, we know. We know that more mature female shopper better than anyone, right? And and we know how she shops and when she shops and why she shops. So anything that talks to that customer, we know her better than anyone. You know, you, if you want to tackle, if you want to, if you want to go after that customer, you're far better off doing it through a mosaic marketplace than through Amazon because we know she's on mosaic. She's not necessarily on Amazon. So that, that's that's where. Yeah, I mean, at some, at some point you'll reach a saturation point, um, but I think we're a long way from that still. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. If you've if you've got that customer base there that's existing and you've been able to grow that and, and target them really well and communicate to them really well, then, of course, it is of value to other people who potentially have products that suit that market to then utilise the existing yeah, it's almost like why hasn't that been, been happening beforehand? It's an interesting... Well, you know, sorry, the, sorry to interrupt. No, the difference no. is I think um, retailers have historically been very, very protective and, you know, not... I think what's, the shift that's happened in the last few years is you're seeing more and more collaborations and you're seeing some collaborations like the General Pants Surfage Partnership where we're selling their product. We could take the view, well, why are we trying to help them out? Well, you know what? If our customer wants to buy that product and they buy it through us and we make a margin out of that, then that's a better outcome than if they had bought it direct. So we're just, I think, starting to become more pragmatic about working in partnership with other brands and other retailers to achieve, you know, an outcome that we're both going to be better off as a result. And it's 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 a nice um, I guess, way for the industry to move forward too, after being really struggle struggle uh, in struggle town through covid that you know everyone's everyone's taken a hit regardless of whatever sector you're in maybe apart from Woolworths and Coles and the supermarkets and stuff like that but but fashion retail and accessories and footwear has has definitely you know felt the impact of covid and closed stores absolutely and that kind of collaboration i guess is a nice way f- for the industry to sort of help each other out out of this this dip that we've seen so yeah it, it's really interesting and and I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned earlier too about kind of really knowing the customer uh, customer and offering them what like complementary products that they'll buy um, and we've sort of seen a, a similar kind of approach happening in luxury fashion and you and you touched on it earlier with ginger and smart in that they know the customer so well that they recognize and and we've all seen it that 
dressing up through the pandemic has not been happening. People are shifting to more casual clothing, even when they are leaving the house when they're allowed to. So (laughs) we've seen the casualized workwear, even casualized events where people just kind of, I guess, toning down their dressing during a time of crisis, if that's how you want to phrase it. And obviously, Gingeress might recognize that in their customer and went, okay, this is how she's dressing now. We need to cater to this. And um, Alexandra mentioned and told us earlier this year that it makes the brand more accessible in that way and that it can be a sort of more approachable offering for customers that have never previously shopped with Ginger and Smart before. So, with this being, I guess, kind of a growth area for Ginger and Smart potentially, do you think that going forward, once we sort of come out of this whole thing, that luxury will continue to play in that casual space? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you had a, a trend towards casualization that was happening well before COVID. It was, it was a trend that was happening anyway. And, you know, we've, it, like so many other trends, it's been accelerated through COVID. And we've probably overshot a bit as a result of COVID because everyone's at home and no need to dress up. Uh, as we come out of lockdowns and things start to normalise, we will pull back to, you know, there'll, there'll be a shift back to dressing up again, but there, there will have been a, a structural shift to being more casual. I think that's just, that was an inevitable trend that was was happening. So if you look at Ginger and Smart, I mean, a big part of their business every year is the races, is, you know, the party season. We haven't had one of those, you know, we didn't have one last year. It'll be, you know, a bit subdued this year, I expect, regardless of whether we're in lockdown or not, it's going to be subdued. But hopefully next year it'll come back. So we know that that, that customer is always going to be there and that that need for that fashion is going to be there. But we also recognise that there has been a, a structural shift and so we'll continue to offer those more casual items and, and give that customer the, the choice. But, you know, this is, a, this is a, a global trend as well. I mean, you recently had, you know, Gucci collaborating with North Face, Right. So you're seeing more of these, you know, the, the, that casual market. I mean, it, it's it's huge, and and people are spending up big, and so you know we should be playing in it. Doesn't mean that the that the dressy side of the wardrobe has disappeared. It's maybe just gotten a bit smaller, and to make room for more of the casual stuff, but it's still there. And so we'll just probably we'll we'll you know adjust our range as we see how things are unfolding and. You know, you try and respond to the market as quickly as you can. Obviously, in, in, in fashion, you have lead time of months. You know, you design something and it's months before it actually hits the force. You've got to try and think ahead. And we do that as best as best we can. But I expect through the course of next year, we'll see a, a shift back to, to more dressy, uh, you know, that more dressy style of, 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 of fashion, particularly as races come back and the Christmas party season comes back next year, et cetera. And you mentioned earlier too about Ginger and Smart just um, launching into Saks, which is super exciting and a great kind of Aussie luxury fashion story. Uh, do you have kind of any expectations or it's a learning experience for you? I mean, what are you kind of hoping that will happen there? Um, you know, they're always looking for new brands and they love Australian brands, by the way, in the US, as we know, and they're looking for new brands to, to present to their customers. You know, the really amazing thing about that um, process is uh, we never met anyone physically from Saks. They never actually touched the product. It was all done virtually. We did a virtual um, showcase for them. They loved the product that they saw and they placed an order within a couple of weeks and now they followed up with a second order for the next range. I'd like to think that there's an enduring partnership there with those guys, that we will become one of their stables. They're actually 
uh, asking us for imagery because they want to actually promote the brand uh, in some of their publicity materials. They love the colour. I mean, Ginger and Smart is is known for its its prints and its colour, and and they love that. And they're saying, "Wow, our customers in Florida and in Texas are going to love this, as will our customers in New York." So they're they're thinking about you know where are they going to um, put this? What surprised us is I thought the first order would be you know a, a whole a, an online order. In other words, they buy stuff to put. Um, you know, online. But no, no, they're buying for their stores, actually physically for their stores. So I'd like to think that it's going to be a multi-year relationship. But, you know, with these things, you get the first order, you get the second order, they're going to be pretty pretty ruthless if the sell-through is not there. The product's got to be good and it's got to sell through and then the orders will keep coming. And but we're confident in the product. So um, we think that's a good partnership. But it's also given us the confidence to think about, well, what other international partnerships should we now be thinking about for that brand? Mm. And do you have anyone in mind? Oh, you know, uh, I'd love to see us in, in, in Selfridges in the UK or, you know, Nordstrom. And then there are some, you know, some premium online uh, channels as well. So, yeah, there's a, there's, there's, there's a few. But, you know, one step at a time. Uh, as I say, we just, we're really now focused on ensuring that, that the ranges that Saks have bought really do deliver and sell through and, um, and achieve the result that we all want. And we know that we'll be able to build on that. And that will be a space to absolutely watch in the, you know, next coming kind of months and next year and sort of seeing how that develops is, is going to be a really um, great story to tell. And I'm looking forward to chatting to the to the girls more about that too. But it's interesting because you have such a, a wide and versed experience and, and, and currently still going through and learning and lending your knowledge to do these different retail brands, you sort of uh, used that and, and your previous experience with private equity to launch your own business firm, private equity firm this year, Acta Capital. So this is interesting. I don't know that COVID is the best time to be launching a new business, Richard. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if that was really the the right move. I'm not sure, but <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I, like, I like to do things a bit differently and, and, and a bit contrarian. So um, if you ask anyone who knows me, they'd say that's exactly the sort of thing. That we're but I'm wondering um, how how is that kind of gone? I mean, it, it's and private equity in fashion is is a whole other discussion and and how that kind of I guess operates. But uh, how how has that kind of evolved since it launched um, earlier this year? Yeah, look, it's 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 going quite well. Look, to be to be honest, you know, the last twelve months in particular, eighteen months has been about you know stabilising the businesses we've got. We've had to do a lot of work on Mosaic. You know, we've recently announced a capital raising to to stabilise the balance sheet in that business, which is going well, um, you know, doing all the hard work in, um, you know, in service, this ginger and smart and all those brands to make sure that they're well positioned for the future. So there's been a lot of what we call asset management going on where we're actually working on the businesses rather than looking for more investment opportunities. Having said that, there's a lot of opportunities that we're focused on right now. We, we would probably be looking at, you know, at least half a dozen or more new acquisitions right at the minute. And some of them are quite sizable, some of them are quite small. Um, but there's a, there seems to be a lot of um, activity in the market. You know, you've got your sort of your, your, your publicised distressed situations like Kiki K and Crumpler, but there's also a lot of really well-performing businesses that for whatever reason the, the, the owners are looking to sell or they're looking to raise capital. So there's no shortage of opportunities for us to, to look at. And I actually think the next 
12, 18, 24 months are going to be really fertile ground for investing in retail uh, and, and consumers. So I'm really excited about the next the next couple of years and I expect we're going to be seeing a lot more a lot more opportunities come our way that we'll be able to, to look at. You know, we, we, we have a very particular style in, in our investing. Um, we always need an angle when we, when we invest in a new business. So it's not, we don't just buy a nice retail business because it's a nice retail business that happens to be for sale and we hope it'll get better under our ownership. There's got to be an angle and the angle might be a um, operational turnaround or operational improvement that we've got a bit of experience in. Uh, it might be a broken balance sheet that we can fix. Uh, it might be a synergistic um, acquisition for one of our other one of our other businesses, um, or it might be a distressed situation that that we can you know acquire and restructure and fix. There's always got to be that angle for us, and as long as long as we can see that angle, then it becomes of interest to us. And and to be honest, most of the stuff we're seeing, most not all, most of the stuff we can see an angle and say, yep, this is worth taking a look at. Every now and then you'll see something go, yeah, nice business, but you know what? We've got re- really very little ad, uh, value to add, so we're not going to pay you. And you touched on um, Crumpler and Kiki K just before. Are, are you looking at fashion brands as part of the Acta Capital portfolio or is it outside fashion mainly or what's the kind of mix there? We'll look at fashion. We're, we're looking at a few fashion and apparel brands at the moment, so definitely part of our part of our strategy. It's an area that we've got a lot of experience in and a lot of capabilities in and have got quite a large portfolio. So it is a sector that we know and we'll continue to focus on that. But we'll also look at uh, at, at non-fashion and non-apparel uh, retail as well. So ultimately we'll look, we'll look across the board, but um, apparel and fashion is certainly, you know, a key part of our where we see the opportunities going forward. And do you think that COVID has sort of driven a lot of these businesses to realise that they that they maybe weren't performing as strongly as they could have been and need to sell? Has, is the trend that the pandemic has really pushed a lot of these businesses, I guess, over that edge into needing to be bought out or to be acquired? Or was it the pre-existing things before? Uh, I, I think, um, you know, there's been a, some, some businesses have really benefited from, uh, from the pandemic and from the fact that we've had lockdowns and particularly online you know, online-led businesses um, have done quite well. Um, and so they're sitting there saying, well, this is great, and, you know, and, and some of them are actually, you know, looking to sell and capitalise on what we call what we call the COVID bump, right, where they've had a, a lift in sales driven by this increased demand through, through COVID. Um, and you sort of see through that pretty quickly. But then um, you've also seen a lot of businesses that have gone the other way and have really, have really, have really suffered and are, are suffering. The interesting thing is, you know, we all thought there's going to be a bit of distress a year ago. It never happened because you had JobKeeper come in uh, and that supported a lot of businesses but also gave um, additional income to a lot of people that work in retail. So they actually saw an increase in their income and that money had to go somewhere. So we saw, you know, additional spending. And also we had the um, the Retail um, Tenant Code of Conduct, which gave a framework for landlords and tenants to work together to, to restructure leases on a, on a short-term basis. We look at this current lockdown, there hasn't been a job keeper, right? the government support has been structured very differently and um, there hasn't been any framework provided by the government in terms of how landlords and tenants are meant to work together. So really retailers have been left to their own devices. 
So I think this lockdown is probably going to create more stress than the last one. And I think coming out of it, you know, we'll trade through November, December. I think they're both going to be pretty strong months from everything I'm hearing. But then when we get into next year and all the stretched creditors, everyone's been stretching their trade suppliers, when all those trade creditors come due in the new year, when the landlords turn around and say, well, you know, that rent that you didn't pay, you know, through lockdown, we'd like some of that now. That's when you're going to start to see some of that cash flow stress and you're going to see some of these retailers saying, oh, okay, put our hands up, we need some help. And you, it's interesting that you touch on the landlords there too, because that's obviously been a big factor that retailers have had to consider through the pandemic is how are they going to pay their rent? Can they have these discussions with their landlords? And these these types of things were happening pre-COVID as a lot of what we've discussed about today has been. Um, these trends existed before the pandemic and have been accelerated. But the question of you know, how does an online sale that is fulfilled from a store, does that count towards the store's sales? Or how does, you know, if you're during COVID using your store as a dark store to fulfill online orders, how does that, should that count towards if if that's how your rent is based? So, it's an interesting discussion. Have landlords sort of, how have they been trading through this period? Obviously, everyone's had to cooperate, but it's an interesting space, I think, to, to look at. Yeah, I wouldn't say people have been cooperating. Essentially, most retailers have simply said, my stores are closed, I'm not paying rent, and the landlords are being pretty silent through this period. I think um, there's going to be, you know, the reckoning will come when things reopen. Um, so it's kind of, you know, everyone's sort of standing in their respective corners. <laughs> they're not forgetting. <laughs> they're telling it up. <laughs> but, but I think they're not, they're not uh, unlike the last lockdown, there isn't that level of interaction going on, um, that the landlords are being quite silent. Now, look, it varies from landlord to landlord, so I'm generalising, but generally that is the, the approach they're taking. You know, the whole thing about online sales, um, you know, and I need to be careful here because I sit on both sides of, of, the, of that and I've got an online business and I've got bricks and mortar businesses that, that do fulfil some of their online sales through, through the stores. All I'll say is that there isn't a consistent approach by the landlords. Some landlords are far more relaxed about that than others, uh, and some are taking a very, very hard line. Um, and, you know, obviously as retailers, we're taking it, the view that, you know, if we've sold something online just because someone picks it up in a store, doesn't mean that the retailer should get uh, the benefit of that. Um, and, of course, it's only relevant when we're, when we're talking about turnover rents. If you're paying a base rent, it's, it's irrelevant. Dark stores is a different situation. I think when, you know, we're saying we've had the store closed, we're not paying rent, we're only paying minimal rent. When we go to true up what is owing for that particular store, if we've used that store as a dark store that has been fulfilling online sales, I think the landlords will mount a credible argument that, well, there needs to be something to recognise that in the in the true up of, of what you owe us for the rent. So it might not be full rent. It's definitely not zero rent. It's somewhere in between. What's the right number? And that'll definitely become part of the um, part of the discussion, no question. But you know, this this will take months to to. Uh, this isn't going to get sorted out in days or weeks. It's going to take months. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because I can imagine that neither side will <laughs> find a number that they can agree on quite quickly. But did the in last year's lockdown there was the national leasing code of conduct that was introduced and we had to, you know, had to essentially abide by it. Did that help in the negotiations? Would something like that when it comes to that kind of tallying up of the total, would a, a government legislation help that situation? Well, it, it helped then because, well, for a small business, they had to abide by it. 
Uh, and then even a business like Mosaic, we would say, well, that's the framework and the, the government has said they want large retailers and landlords to follow a similar framework, so we're going to follow that framework. And so it was nice that the government had effectively said that. And whilst some of the landlords said, well, we don't care, we don't have to do that, it created a basis for a conversation. And you can actually then, you know, you've got a negotiating position you can work from. The problem now is, you know, that was then, this is now, there is no framework, there is no um, code of conduct, and so you don't have um, a starting point for the negotiation. So we will start at one extreme, they'll start at the other extreme and we'll meet somewhere in the middle, but it's just going to be a much more protracted negotiation as a result, right? Mm, Absolutely. It's certainly going to be interesting. We all thought that it was all going to happen in 2020 and yet it's carrying on through this year, next year, probably maybe early 23. I mean, it's, yeah. Certainly, um, it's it's impacted every every facet of retailing, and it's been absolutely enlightening to hear how each of the brands that you're involved with and businesses you're involved with have kind of traded to survive and thrive during this time. It's been a really interesting discussion, Richard. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me on Rag Trader Radio. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Imogen. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks so much. Not a problem. And thank you for listening to this episode of Rag Trader Radio. Hey, if you like that, please feel free to head on over to our website and subscribe to our free newsletter at ragtrader.com.au. Cheers. You've been listening to Rag Trader Radio, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Rag Trader, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Rag Trader, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via the website or send an email to info at yaffa.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's fashion industry at ragtrader.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.